Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about coercive control and abuse as it relates to every form of sexual sin. But before we jump into that conversation, I want to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from what you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then friends, PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University by visiting chrismoles.org. We'd love to see you in the membership. It's a great place to learn and grow in your response to domestic abuse. Once again, you can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. So today we received some questions that I want to just wrestle with a little bit because I can understand and, and I want to empathize with how difficult... Uh, these type of questions and concerns can be. So let me read the question and we'll just jump in and try to wrestle with it. If a man's pornography use, sex addiction, or infidelity are not always abusive because they're not always used as a means of coercive control against his wife, how do you explain the deep harm and suffering that they still cause her? Can someone experience deep harm and suffering because of their husband's unrepentant sin and not be abused by him? So this question is in response to, um, I believe, episode 227. Uh, and again, I, I never wanted to sign up to be any type of um, apologist for, for pornography. I think pornography is a horrible, horrible thing in our culture. But uh, I do understand that some listeners have pushed back to the idea that um, aspects of sexual sin may not be sexual abuse, although it certainly can be present. And I want to make sure I'm very clear on that. Pornography use, infidelity. What was the other one used in the question? Sex addiction. So sexual activity, whether it be uh, through means of pornography or adultery or um, aspects of fornication, uh, you know, sex outside of the marriage or sexual activity, can and often are part of the pattern of abusive behavior. I have contended that they are not in and of themselves uh, acts of abuse per se. They, they can be part of that pattern. But just because someone has experienced sexual sin does not mean that they are uh, in turn being abused. And, and I want to be very careful and clear in how I walk this out. And I think the last part of the question is the most helpful in regards to that. Uh, can someone experience deep harm and suffering because of their husband's unrepentant sin and not, and it's all capital letters, and not be abused by him? And I think the answer to that has to be, yes, that doesn't mean that abuse isn't occurring, but the presence of significant deep wounding sin is not the same as the presence of coercive control, power to dominate, 
creation of threat and fear, etc. Um, and I, and I want to be careful here because I, I do not want in any way to say that deep wounding as a result of sexual sin is not a problem. It is a huge problem. It is a deep-seated problem. It's a hard-hearted problem. It's something that should be addressed in many ways, similarly to how we address the sin of, say, domestic abuse. What I want to guard against is conflating specific behavior with the term domestic abuse so that it applies in every circumstance. Because as you've heard me say many times, if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse. And so just because a behavior was consistently used to target a victim in this case, case A, you know, case or marriage A, does not necessarily mean that that same behavior is seen, used, or um, perceived as significant or in the same way or to the same degree or extent in marriage B. Uh, Because really the tactics of abuse are are more those broad categories. The specifics of abuse need to be recognized. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be owned and hated by the abuser, but they will be distinct. Yes, there will be some overlap, but the specific means by which somebody abuses their partner will differ from case to case. And I think this has been a danger uh, in both um, the helping community, in the work community, as well as in the biblical counseling community. And I'll try to give you some examples. Let's start with the biblical counseling community. And I think what we have seen in our tribe, in my tribe, is a counselor, very competent lay counselor in the church, encounters a case of domestic abuse in which they find either um, what they perceive to be success or what they perceive to be as failure. And, and I, I say the perception because many lay counselors and biblical counselors that encounter domestic abuse for the first time um, have a difficult time understanding or, or defining what is success or failure. But just for the sake of argument, they, they find uh, an area of success. Maybe there's a, a restoration of the relationship and they've done a good job confronting and they've done a good job comforting and they've done a good job caring. And they saw and learned so much. I mean, they read, they, they interacted with podcasts, they asked good questions, they learned. And that one case of domestic abuse has really shaped them as a counselor in a good way. And then one of the organizational calls come out. If you're in our tribe, you know that occasionally the organizations that we're a part of will send a call out for papers or blog posts, submissions, or uh, breakout sessions for maybe a conference. And this counselor goes, you know, that was such a meaningful case to me. I'm going to write a breakout session for the upcoming um, organization of biblical counseling people conference. Um, I just made a new acronym for anybody who wants to join. Uh, Dues will be collected every, I don't know, every October or every September. Um, The new organization that we just formed. And they send this submission that they want to do a breakout on domestic abuse based on the one case that they've done. And they have a well-articulated arguments, and they do a great job applying Scripture. But when it comes to identifying abuse, they use only the specific behaviors that they saw in their case. And they limit abuse to um, aspects in which they're familiar with. 
And in doing so, they may actually limit our understanding of the pattern, of uh, the importance of coercion, of force, the uh, threats that are engaged, and of course, the centrality of power. And well-meaning effort, however, basing it on one case could prove damaging. On the other hand, maybe you're just a helper, a, a person in the work, and maybe you're a survivor who God has graciously brought through your process of healing and change, and you want to share that with other people. We want to empower that. Not everyone should share their story. Not everyone has to share their story, but you feel compelled to share your story in such a way that will help other people, and you engage in advocacy or counseling in order to help other people. However, your process of change related to your specific um, suffering is what you bring to the table without adding layers of, of scripture and theology and other people's experiences and systems that have been proven to help. You only bring your experiences that could again, prove limited, just like the biblical counselor who brings one case. So I think you have to be really balanced when you're coming to this table and saying, this is always abuse and this is never abuse because abuse, especially domestic abuse, will look incredibly different from case to case. And I think uh, sexual sin in particular has a devastating way of affecting the partner. So to answer the question in the general, as I said, can someone experience deep harm and suffering because of their husband's unrepentant sin and not be abused by him? I think the answer is yes. However, you really want to dig in, listen well, learn from the individuals that you're talking with, and gather as much data as possible because it is probable that if deep sexual sin, if sexual sin is harming your partner deeply, it's possible that that's just one part of a pattern of coercion and control that's been going on for a long time. And so you really want to draw out that pattern uh, to see what else is there. I think, I think some may, may push back, rightfully so, I get it, and saying, I, I don't understand how someone could cause, could sin so grievously against their partner and you not automatically say that it's abuse. So I'll, I'll try to give a couple examples um, from experience. So uh, working with a couple, uh, she committed adultery with a coworker. Um, he pursued her. He tried in many ways to win her back. He uh, did things, some things poorly and some things well. And yet she had made her decision. She wanted to be with this other man. It cut him deeply. It hurt him deeply. It wounded him deeply. However, throughout the process, he maintained agency. He was free to come and free to go. Uh, throughout the process, he, his safety was not threatened. He was not in any imminent, immediate, or future danger. Um, he was not being coerced at this point in any way through threat of force um, or violence, but it's, it was horrible. It cut and wounded him deeply and he was sinned against grievously in a situation like that. I struggle to call him a victim of domestic abuse because in the scope of the problem, he was not a victim of domestic abuse. He was a sufferer. He was a victim of his, his partner's adultery 
And he certainly suffered all the consequences from that. And if there are children involved, they suffer as well. Uh, but I do struggle labeling that scenario domestic abuse because none of the other um, patterns are present. Does that mean that it's somehow right? No, this is not a, this is not a matter of abuse is wrong and everything else is somehow by proxy righteous. That was grievously sinful. But I would not say that she was an abuser and he was a victim. In, in large part because as hard as that situation is, it is distinctly different from an individual who is living under the threat and fear of coercive control. I'll give you another couple that I disagree with. Um, they agree to um, view pornography as part of their lifestyle. I disagree with it. I, I think it's a bad decision. I think that porn has tremendous risks and no benefits. I think in and of itself, it's exploitive as a um, media. I, I think it has tremendous consequences societally. And I'm not convinced um, that it is their willingness to bring it into the marriage bed is not an invitation to adultery as it is bringing a third party, albeit virtually, into the bedroom. However, with all that being said, my distaste for the practice, my belief that it is a sinful practice, my thoughts that it is unhealthy and possibly destructive for their relationship, for all intents and purposes, it's a mutually agreed upon behavior and no one is forcing, coercing, threatening, or... Um, lacking agency in that relationship. I fail to see where I can find an abuser and a victim. Do I like it? No. And do I approve of it? Of course not. But I think to conflate it to the, to the call of domestic abuse is to actually reduce our impact in our conversations with victims and perpetrators, uh, many of which are using the same behaviors in their relationship to coerce control and threat. And that's all I'm getting at is I don't want to elevate any one behavior to the automatic level of abuse without talking about the significant need for patterns um, and, and fear and threat. Uh, sexual addiction was mentioned, and I'm not really sure how to interact with that particular terminology. So I think for our purposes, we'll just talk about the pornography and the infidelity as not always being abusive. And I think it's somewhat semantics because nine times out of 10, yes. <laughs> the majority of the time, sexual sin will go hand in hand with abuse, especially when you think about aspects of sexual coercion, threat. So that's why, again, let's go back to the middle ground. That's why to my friends who, who want to say, we just can't take experiences because Chris is right, Anything can be elevated to abuse, so we have to have really strict standards as to what behavior is abuse. I say, oh, please, friend, move to the middle. Understand that it's not about the specific behavior that you're witnessing. It's about listening and learning to see the pattern of coercive control, threat, fear, and power. To my friend that maybe says, well, all experiences are abusive, if perceived that way by the recipient. Let's back up and let's talk. Let's listen. Let's learn 
and ask good questions to gather good data and come to good conclusions. And I find that counselors who do that, counselors who set with a victim, set with a client, ask good questions, listen well, ask for clarity, rarely, rarely find themselves labeling specific behavior and instead find themselves talking about an abusive existence, a lived experience, a pattern of behavior, of coercion, threat, and fear. And that's really all I'm asking, is that rather than seeing this red flag as a sure-fired, this is always the case, let's see it as for what it is, as a red flag that draws us into conversation, that draws us into listening, that draws us into good information gathering, into building involvement with this person so that we can learn more about their story. And in learning more about their story, we can learn more about their experience. And in learning more about their experience, we can learn more about their lived experience and what they're actually functionally living in on a day-to-day basis. The same is true for working with uh, abusive individuals or perpetrators. As we pull the rope, begin to gather data, we can build more clarity so that we don't just get pulled into the rabbit hole of, of discussing the adultery, but that we begin to connect the dots and to see in that case, sure, adultery was a culmination, was a defining moment connected to all of these other patterns of coercive and controlling behavior. And when we do that, sure, we will see plenty of sexual sin within the scope of domestic abuse. Um, But that's what I'm asking that we do, that we come back to the middle, that we spend our time listening, learning, uh, and developing uh, our concentration and our response to the pattern of abuse as opposed to the individual acts of abuse. All of us have experienced pain and sin. All of us have been sinned against. Uh, We all stumble in many ways, so all of us have sinned against others. And uh, I do think that sin is significant. We should address it in all of its forms. But I also believe that abuse, as we're discussing domestic abuse, does have some specific markers, some, some, some specific aspects that must be uniquely addressed and abused. Uh, and addressed and um, responded to. And I really want us to be diligent to respond to it well uh, and respond to it thoroughly by including all of these aspects of sexual sin along with the heart and the intents and the impact uh, that go along with every um, sufferer and every perpetrator that we deal with. Well, I hope that was helpful, guys. I thank you all for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. I really want to encourage you to keep up the good work, keep pursuing truth as you pursue people. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you wouldn't mind, rate, review, subscribe, let the platform that you're listening on know that you appreciate the, um, the PeaceWorks process and that you appreciate the podcast. Let them know, um, that you're listening. Uh, once again, thank you all for being part of this. We love y'all. Until next time, God bless.